media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles this morning. We're going to go to uh, that familiar uh, book that talks all about Christmas, Leviticus. And, uh, you know, probably that's not a, a link that you make in your life normally that, okay, if you're thinking about the Christmas story and, and the advent and, and all that, that you would think, okay, yeah, you know, I think that's right there in Leviticus somewhere. But we're going to try to make that connection today. Not that we're making the connection, but try to observe how God has made that connection. How many of you have ever heard of the word Redeemer? If you've been in church at all, you've heard that word and and I think that you would probably have a pretty good working knowledge of it. It is a word that is used to describe both Christ and the work of Christ. It describes what he did. He redeemed us. And also it is the title that he had, one of the titles that he has, that he is the Redeemer. And it's through, found throughout the Bible. And if you just had to guess where it was found more, Old Testament or New Testament, knowing that Christ the Redeemer, this word redeeming, uh, redemption on all the forms of it, would you think that there would be more occurrences in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? Somebody said old? Anybody venture new? I mean, in one way, when you're thinking about Christ, when you're thinking about, you know, uh, the Redeemer coming, we're, we're thinking kind of New Testament, that Christ is coming. And, and actually, it's not even a, a close race. This word redemption and this whole thought of redeeming is so much more found in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only found 18 times in the New Testament. Now, the thought is there much more than that, but any form of the word that we see redeem, redemption, is really only there a few times in the New Testament. It certainly is, is, is portrayed in a lot of other words that would describe that. But if you go to the Old Testament, it's used 149 times. Now, I'm not giving that to you just so that you can become really nerdy with biblical facts. I'm giving it to you because I think there's a purpose in that. So oftentimes I do hear people that said, you know, I kind of like the New Testament. I'm just not really big on that Old Testament. And it's one of those things that every time I hear somebody say that, I, I, I try not to judge, but I'm going, oh man, you're missing some of the beauty of the Bible. That God throughout the ages has linked what he's written in the Old Testament and we see that fulfillment of those prophecies and those promises in the New Testament. And uh, it's really kind of, to me, one of those amazing things. I think we would all agree that the Bible has great width. Would you agree with that? That as far as information, the things that it talks about, uh, if you just had to do all the historical facts, the Bible is a really wide book. I mean, it covers a lot of ground, and it's very wide. Sometimes, though, I wonder if we really are awed by the depth of the Bible. I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago, about how in, in sometimes in discipleship, we'll be in the Old Testament and we'll see something that happened then in the New Testament and how as, just as guys discipling other guys, we'll say, is that not cool? And what we will walk away from that day that it's just kind of encouraging to us is to see the depth of the Bible, how it all links together, how the roots of this wonderful book of God has depth and not just width. But when we open up the Old Testament, uh, uh, we do find some books that are more appealing than others if we just want to be really, really, you know, honest. You go to Psalms. Who doesn't love the Psalms? 
I've got a funeral tomorrow. I was talking with the family yesterday. I said, is there a particular passage that, that you would want, uh, you know, that Mr. Titchall would, would like? And, oh, he loves Psalm 23. And I'm going, everybody does. I said, that's, that's wonderful. I said, that will be such an encouragement to everybody who comes to remember your dad tomorrow. We love the Psalms. But if we made a list of just those both interesting and kind of inspiring books, the book of Leviticus probably wouldn't be in the top ten. And most people would say, you know, that's one of those that you read when you have insomnia or you just, you know, you can't go to sleep. And yet, when we really look in there, we see such beautiful things in Leviticus. I agree that it can be, if we want to say boring, in, in, in the fact that it just gives a lot of details, and it even seems to be quite repetitive with those details. I mean, sometimes you'll read it, and it'll be like the fifth time that God has mentioned that, and you're going, okay, didn't we read that four times already? But there's purpose in every one of those times. And when we look in the book of Leviticus, we're going to see that in Leviticus 25... And 27, that the word redeemed, redemption, this thought, this, this New Testament kind of associated word is actually mentioned more in Leviticus 25 and 27 than it is in the entirety of the New Testament. Kind of a weird thing that right here in the middle of Leviticus that we would find that. And so this morning we're going to kind of look in there, uh, this depth of the Bible that is certainly wide, but the depth of a book that was written by uh, approximately 40 authors over a 1,500-year pe- uh, period, and yet God links it all together in Christ. Spurgeon said, you know, this scarlet thread that just kind of goes all the way through the Old Testament Genesis to Revelation, this gospel, the picture of Christ and the redemption of man. Let me give this very brief uh, overview this morning of of uh, just that word redeem, it does mean to buy back, to buy out. Uh, there's a sense of it that means to rescue, and we've been talking about that uh, for the first two weeks of Advent, of uh, that God has promised a rescuer, and it has some sense of that. But as we open up to Le- Leviticus 25, um, there's no way that I'm going to be able in this time frame to go in depth for that. You can go back and read uh, Leviticus 25 and, and go much deeper uh, this afternoon or sometime this week. But God establishes a seventh year rest. They were an agricultural society. And he said, look, I want you to farm for six years. You you plant and you harvest and you plant and you harvest. But on the seventh year, I don't want you to plant. But you will harvest because I'll be the provider for that. Uh, We get a a semblance of that in Leviticus 25, verse 3 and 4. Look what it says. For six years you shall sow your field. And for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a rest of of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. Now notice it says a Sabbath to the Lord. The land will be given rest, but the purpose is for God to demonstrate something. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Now this was done for a couple of reasons. It taught the nation of Israel, God's people, to trust God's provision. I don't know how long you've been walking with Christ, but isn't it amazing how as much as we have words of faith, that sometimes we do have challenges to our faith? And a lot of times that challenge to our faith comes down to, okay, God, are you going to provide for that? It may be in a relationship. It may be financially. It may be health-wise. But sometimes the greatest challenges that we as believers you know, face are challenges of God's provision. 
And it's not just, okay, God's timing with that provision. It's just, okay, God, you kind of know I'm sinking here. (laughs) The boat's going down. And yet, so one of the things that God wants to establish with his people early on is, I provide. And so I don't want you to plant that seventh year. The next thing that we begin to see is that it reinforced that God is the owner of it all. Probably one of the hardest lessons to live, uh, to, to learn in our life. That, that we are stewards of the things that God has provided for us. But ultimately, He is the owner of it all. And we know that in theory. I think a lot of us know that in, uh, in a desire to, to live that way. But it's kind of hard to live that out on a regular basis. So God is kind of reinforcing that with the people of Israel. This was my land. It was the land I gave you. And yet I want you to know that uh, I'm the owner of it. The third thing that we see there is it was actually healthy for the land. I understand that even in agriculture today that, you know, they know the benefit of farming a certain, you know, acreage of land and then giving it some rest. And that the minerals and all the things are kind of resupplied and they can go out and that land is more fruitful because of the rest than it was if you just kept on using that land over and over and depleting the nutrients out of it. So there was a practical part, but most of this was a spiritual part. In fact, when the Israelites disobeyed this, because God says, okay, I want you to do these things, but he also begins to uh, to tell them in, in chapter 26, okay, this is what happens if, if you don't heed my word. Uh, there's a penalty. This, there, there's, there's something that's going to be uh, a recompense that comes against you uh, when you don't do this. And so he's very, very serious. In fact, we see one of those in Leviticus 26, 17. And I'm just kind of pulling out. I hate pulling out just one verse out of a section. You can go back and read this in its entirety. But he says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. God's perhaps even there, saying, okay, part of the, the, the time that you're going to spend in the Egyptians under slavery in the Egyptians and bondage of them is because of the rejection, because they did reject this from time to time. There's times that they truly greatly honored it, and other times they didn't follow it. So this would repeat every seven years. And then God says, okay, I want you to do this six years of work, one year of rest of the land, and I want you to do this seven times over. Seven and seven, God's perfect number. How many years is that? Forty-nine. You were good in math. Okay? So you do this. And he says, I want you to do something special after the seventh cycle of this seventh year rest. And he calls it in here the, the, a time of jubilee. And look what happens. Leviticus 25, 8 and 9. Look what happens in the 50th year. Verse 8, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be given 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout the land. And and what they were talking about is a horn, uh, much like this, a ram's horn, and they would blow that. I would actually demonstrate that to you, but I have... I make a really awful noise when I do this. There's a secret to it. Sherry said that she actually could do that, so I should have let her do that this morning. But it's actually harder than you think. You don't just blow into it and then naturally the sound comes out. But when you do it correctly, it's an amazing sound. 
It's uh, Jewish people have used that to start their worship, the call to worship. But here God says, look, on this year of Jubilee, in this 50th year, blow this horn, and this will signal that the year of Jubilee is to begin. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So in verse 10, he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. And he's about to step, set forth what will happen in this year of Jubilee. Does anybody notice anything um, particular about verse 10? Leviticus 25.10. Proclaim liberty throughout the land and all its inhabitants. American history. Anybody have a clue? Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. That's what's inscribed in it. Leviticus 25.10. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. And, and so what does this mean? What is this year of Jubilee? Well, it was, it started by, you know, this, the, the, the leaders would go out and they would blow this horn. And basically four things would happen. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but, but four things would happen in this 50th year. Debts were forgiven. If you owed money, it was eliminated. Land was restored to the original owner from 50 years before. Let's say that you had fallen on hard times. You had to sell that land. That land was restored to you in the 50th year. A third thing is that prisoners and captives were freed. If you were uh, in slavery, if you were enslaved to somebody, if you were a prisoner, you, you got out of jail. And then workers were freed from their contracts. If they had signed a contract and they were working for somebody, they were freed. That didn't mean that automatically they just stopped working for this person, but they were uh, freed. And you can find all of that in Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 55. If you read the rest of that, you're going to find all these particulars. Now, why did God do this? Because of this word redemption. Because of this idea of redemption. Please don't see these things as political. See them as spiritual. I think it would be really, we would really be doing injustice to the word of God if we began to say, okay, debts are forgiven and, and land was restored. And we saw these as political things. These were not political in nature at all. This is a spiritual thing that God was doing with the nation of Israel, all to point them back that, that he's sovereign God. He's the owner of it all. It's also a time when they would let the land rest, not for one year, but for three years. Look at verse 20 and 21. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, if, okay, if we're not going to be planting seeds, and, and what are we going to harvest? Verse 21. I will, God says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. So the 49th year, which was a natural seventh. Then the 50th year, which is this jubilee. And then as they went out, they would have to then harvest, you know, they wouldn't have the harvest from that year before. So it, they have to have enough food for really three years there. And what does God say? I'll take care of you. Now, it's one of those things. I, I, I'm not a farmer. Some of you have some backgrounds in farming a little bit. And it's one of those things 
if all of a sudden, you know, uh, you're going to go tell, let's say that you're the son or the daughter, and you're going to go tell your dad, hey, God told me to tell you not to plant for the next two years. <laughs> Bruce, you're going, that's not, dad's not buying that. Why? Because we know that this rhythm, and, and we have to produce, we have to kind of, you know, do the work in order to, to get the fruit. And so this was a challenge to an agricultural society, and yet it was a challenge not on a political level, but on a spiritual level. God says, trust me. And I want to bring this rest to you. Well, Pastor, that's great, and and, and I appreciate the history lesson there, but... Uh, what does this have to do with Advent? But what relationship does this scripture and the Old Testament Levitical law have to do with the coming of Christ? Well, I would say it in this one word. Everything. Everything. God's planting a seed in the Old Testament, I mean like way in the Old Testament, of something that he's going to do through Christ as a redeemer. Through this dry book of laws and regulations that is Leviticus, God is laying the groundwork for an understanding of a coming of a Redeemer that will bring about the spiritual reality of the four things that we just mentioned. That there will be a time when our sin debt will be forgiven. There will be a time when a restoration of our relationship to Holy God, which was broken, that will be restored. You know, during the year of Jubilee, the prisoners were set free. This is a pre-picture of our prison of sin that we've been captured in since the first breath we took. We were born in that nature of sin and how God would free us from that sin. And that he would also free us. Remember, they're, they're taking this time where they're resting, that you and I would be able to rest in the righteousness and the finished work of God rather than in our own works. Now, guys, I, I realize that this is a rather simplistic covering of a lot of details that are there in Leviticus 25. And I would challenge you, go back and do in-depth study. It's really kind of cool. It's a great book. But, but I want you to see that God is laying a foundation in the Old Testament by all the promises and what he's going to fulfill in the life of Christ. And, and in the Old Testament, he institutes this method of redemption. To buy back, to buy out. And, and so part of the Leviticus 25 is how people would redeem something that they had lost. But ultimately during this year of Jubilee is how God was the one that was really in control of everything. He, he introduces this concept of a release in the year of Jubilee. And that's what the New Testament writers began to focus on. As they saw the coming of the Messiah, as they see Christ coming, they would begin to write about that. Paul said this to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. To what? To redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption of sons. He said, look, in all of human history, Genesis to Revelation, history past, history future, at the perfect time, God brought forth a fulfillment of all this prophecy and all these promises. It doesn't stop there. Look at the prophecy that was given to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, really close to the what we call the... Tr- a Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 and 3. 
But, but preceding that, you know, God gives a prophetic word to Zechariah, and, and look what it says. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and what? Redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation, this horn of announcement. The year of Jubilee, it starts with the blow of this horn for us in the house of his servant David. Well, Bobby, I just think you're kind of combining some words that maybe really don't go together. That's fine for you to have that opinion. (laughs) The Bible is wide. It has a great width. But folks, I hope you stand in awe of the depth of the Bible. How these truths, all these books of the Bible and all these writings and all these things that are the word of God, how when we travel down and see where they're rooted, they're all connected. It's an amazing thing. Now, now is that just so that we can be fascinated and kind of a, and a kind of a, a, a mind, oh man, I'm fascinated, you know, by God. No, it's to build our confidence in what God is stating. See, the more that I see God working a plan through the ages, guess what I am tempted to do in my own life? To trust that he still has a plan. Have you ever been there before? When you know in your mind that God has a plan for the ages. That he starts in Genesis, really before Genesis, before the foundation of the world, that he's going to end in what we call revelation and and, uh, history future. And in one way, as Christians, I would think that most of us say, you know, Bobby, I believe that God is working a plan for the ages. And yet sometimes when certain things happen in our lives, we disassociate ourselves from that plan. And we feel like maybe something has happened that God's not aware of. Now, again, theologically we would come back and say, okay, no, God knows everything. But but honestly, in your faith, have you ever been on the journey of life, and and at least for the moment, for the day, for the week, for the month? God, I'm I'm sinking here. God, I, I don't see a plan. I don't see how this could ever work out. This is why we go into the Scripture. This is why we go, and, and we're not trying to make this up. We're not the ones that put in there, raised up a horn of salvation. But he's pronouncing that the Christ is coming. And, and he says, look, I just want you, and he uses this Old Testament figure of speech, this horn of salvation, which meant power. The horn of salvation is power, but it's also an announcement. And in Luke chapter 1, we get the announcement that Christ is coming. But not only did New Testament readers, uh, writers proclaim this, Jesus himself did. Remember the time we made mention of it probably just the three or four weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago? Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he's back there and he goes to synagogue that day. And as they naturally did, they would allow visiting or out-of-town rabbis to come in and read the scripture that day. And uh, so Jesus is in there and and they said, well, you read scripture today. That was part of the, the worship service. And he says, yes, I will. And so he opens up. And do you remember what book of the Bible that he reads from? I think I heard it. Isaiah. And Isaiah has a lot of prophecy about the coming Messiah. And he opens this up. And look what happens. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and following. 
And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written. And here's the the passage from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now listen to what this good news is. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Does that sound a little bit familiar to Leviticus 25? Recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now look at verse 19. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what do you think is the reference there? But when scholars see verse 19, the year of the Lord's favor, what do you think they think of in the Old Testament that is the year of the Lord's favor? Any guesses? This year of Jubilee. Guys, we're not trying to be nerdy here. But for those who think, you know, I don't know that God really has a plan. I don't know that I really feel like this plan is being carried out. I don't see how these two things that are happening in my life are ever going to come together to make any sense. Look what God does through the ages, folks. Look what he does over centuries and centuries. He takes little things here, little things there, and he ties them together so that you and I 2,000 years later, later where where we open up the Bible and we find out that it all connects. As we looked at in the last two weeks, we're the ones that need rescuing. What do we need rescuing from? Our sin. And so this rescuer isn't just come to save the day and be in a political movement. That's what all the Jews thought. And that's really what they wanted. They wanted, uh, I, I wish I would have put this um, quote in there, uh, but it's a, it's a quote uh, from Spurgeon about what they wanted, and, and it's a, this great description of this muscle-bound, greater-than-David kind of person, and it's, it, he used all these really great words, uh, adjectives, to describe what they were wanting, and that's exactly what they were wanting. They didn't want a little baby boy born in a manger. And yet in God's infinite plan, he took two strings that you could never imagine bringing them together and that they would tie into some kind of unity. And he begins to do that. We needed redemption from our sin. Our rescue, the rescue mission, is is to, to free us from our sin. And that's exactly what Paul writes about. In Galatians 3.13, he says, Christ redeemed us From what? From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul says, this redemption? This is what Christ fulfilled. Colossians, when he's writing to the church at Colossae, in Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you, and here's the description, it's not very flattering, (laughs) You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with this legal demands. Kind of sound like what was happening in Leviticus 25? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Forgive me if I just kind of see the nerdiness of all this. I see the coolness of it. That all these things that God brings together, how the Bible points us back so that we can understand the present. And one of the reasons that God does that is just to to build up our faith. The other reason is because we have not finished the timeline of humanity yet, have we? There's still more of God's plan and his promises that, that are out there before us. This second advent, the second coming of Christ. And I promise you, just like the Old Testament places like Leviticus 25 that help us to understand the coming of Christ, that now we read throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, all this fulfillment for the things that are yet to come. That's what we find in Titus chapter 2. Look at Titus 2, 11 through 14, and then we'll close this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When? In this present age. Now look at the transition, verse 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope. He said, okay, is this how you live now, based on what Christ has done? But there's an aspect of your life and my life if you're a believer in Christ, that you're waiting. What are we waiting for? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for, uh, for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Bible always pointing us back always applying to the present, giving us a way to live, always giving us hope for the future. That's what Advent is. As we think back to a time of waiting, when we light these candles and and we think about, okay, this waiting for Christ to come, it, it points us back, but it certainly points us ahead to the waiting that you and I are involved in, this waiting for the return of Christ. And my purpose this morning is not to give, fill your head with all kinds of geographical and, you know, legal kind of things that happened in the law and all that. No, to, to have this one takeaway. God is working his plan. And if you don't feel it right now, don't trust your feelings. Trust truth in the word of God. I know that is so countercultural. No, but my feelings are where it's... No, it's not. My feelings have so betrayed me at times that if I went with feelings, oh my goodness, my life would look drastically different. But by the grace of God in those moments that my feelings were leaning one way, God provided through His Spirit and through His Word truth that kind of stopped me in my tracks and sometimes would turn me around. Can you relate to that? (laughs) This is the goodness of God. This is the grace of God. And so this morning, if you're wondering, in fact, I would ask you this question as we close. All this is about God's provision of a rescue or a redeemer. Have you trusted God's provision? 
Have you trusted in, in the one way that God gave and provided for us to be right with him, a holy God? It wasn't attend church a number of these weeks. It wasn't go through these physical acts. It wasn't all these different things. No, he said, no, here's your one hope to be restored, to be redeemed with me. Your sins need to be bought back, to be paid for. And I've only provided one way. Because it's a way that you can never do it yourself. I mean, that's what we see in being established in Leviticus 25. Well, that's not right. If they had to sell it then, why do they get it back at the year of Jubilee? Because God is establishing grace. He's establishing this measure that just blows our mind. This thing that sounds counterintuitive to hardworking people. And yet, thank God. That in our mindset, and we are still called biblically to be hardworking people, don't get me wrong, in a, prag- in a practical, pragmatic way. But spiritually, you can never work hard enough. And God, in our dilemma, sent a rescuer and a redeemer who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your provision. Father, I thank you. I pray that we have done justice to your word. Father, I feel so inadequate. The beauty of your word is so wide, so deep, that, Father, it just doesn't seem that we can begin to even begin to capture the beauty of what you have established before us. And so, Father, I thank you for your spirit that, Father, will give us understanding, will tie uh, loose ends together, that will speak to ears that will hear and a heart that will receive. Father, I pray for those right now that truly they, they don't see your plan. And even a talk about a plan, Father, almost hits them in a bad way because they just feel, Father, that there's no way that the chaos of their life, the destructive forces that are happening in their life, could in any way be a part of a plan. Father, today I pray that you'd give them courage and faith. And Father, they would look at the Redeemer. And that in the hope that is Christ, Father, they would say, Okay, God, if you solved that, if you solved my sin problem, then really every other problem is minor. You've done my main problem. You, you finished it. You completed it. And so, Father, I can trust you, even in the chaos of my life, that you can take these loose ends and you can tie them together in a a beautiful story of grace in my life. Father, we thank you for a Redeemer, one that a curse could be placed upon to take the curse off of us. We love you, Father. And we pray now in the hope of of his name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.